You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. And I'm Nordic's Head of Thought Leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. We recently sat down to chat with Dr. Shri Adusamali, the Senior Medical Director for Enterprise Virtual Care at CVS Health. A practicing cardiologist passionate about using technology and behavioral science to improve the quality, safety, and value of care, Shri was the deputy director of the Nudge Unit at Penn Medicine, one of the first of its kind. He now devotes his time to improving access to and experience with healthcare in a retail setting. He's also an adjunct professor at Penn. In today's podcast, Dr. Dusamali talks about how his childhood love of tinkering with technology led to a career as an informaticist ways in which retail health can fill care gaps, the nudges and sludges that fill our healthcare system, written guidelines on the difficulties of translating them into IT, and the keys to designing at scale. Let's plug in. So Shri, it seems that you've always wanted, since you were a very young child, to be a clinical informatician working at the nudge unit at Penn. Um, since you were very, very young. Is that, is that accurate or did I misread that? That's 100% right. Well, you know, Craig, I, uh, I, I've always wanted to be in the field of medicine, really, ever, ever since I was young. And, and also as a practicing cardiologist, uh, really has been a, been a dream of mine and has been a privilege and honor to, to be able to do so. But also as I've uh, gone through both earlier stages of education, as well as started to practice, I've started to develop a passion for the use of health information technology in intentional ways to help improve the quality, safety, and value of care. And that's where my interests sort of at the interface of both health IT as well as behavioral science have come in. So I think I had read that really you started off interested in quality and did a lot of work in quality. And as a background, you just happened to be interested in technology and you were that kid who was programming computers at a young age and, and wondered if you could perhaps put those two things together. That's right. As a young kid, I always was, you know, a a tinkerer with technology, started out with a Gateway 2000 computer and and a variety of other technology tools really from the age of four. And so that's always been a background interest of mine for years. And only till relatively recently did I discover the ability to to merge that that interest, which has been more of a hobby with technology with, with the field of medicine. And that's really occurred through the channel of health informatics. And you're right that uh, originally uh, my formal education uh, outside of clinical medicine has been in the space of quality improvement uh, and and patient safety. did a fellowship in that area and a master's in health services research, which included some formal education there. But I started to notice along the way that a lot of our activities in the quality and safety space were dependent on health IT and health IT systems. And oftentimes it was either that the health IT system would be the enabler to uh, beneficial change from a quality perspective or the barrier. But yet uh, we didn't have enough individuals at that interface who could translate between the worlds, the clinical and the technology worlds. And that's really where I found my passion in trying to deeply understand both worlds and serve as a bridge between the two. That's great. And I I can't believe that you would say on the air that sometimes IT was a a barrier. I'm shocked at that. And um, more often uh, a facility. And this is me being slightly sarcastic. Can you talk a little bit about the nudge unit at Penn? I think it's, it's one of the first uh, of its kind and, and rather unique. 
Uh, it is, yeah. And so the Nudge Unit at Penn Medicine uh, was formed in 2016. Uh, the founding director was Dr. Mitesh Patel, one of my mentors. And uh, it emerged as, a, as really rooted in a tradition of behavioral science uh, within the University of Pennsylvania and was a collaboration between the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics at Penn, as well as the Center for Healthcare Innovation, both very strong groups in their own right. And really, as Dr. Patel founded it and many others, uh, and I started to, to sort of get engaged with the work, I started to notice that it, it was at the interface of, of health system and health system operations, as well as behavioral science. And the mission, like other nudge units in other settings around the world, which, by the way, have been well-established, for example, in areas like government, the mission was to uh, rigorously apply the principles of behavioral science to healthcare delivery, and then to evaluate those in, in, with rigorous study designs up to and including uh, randomization, randomized clinical trials as well. And oftentimes, uh, and a number of those projects ended up being uh, framed around or utilizing the electronic health record uh, as, as a form of health IT. And I, and I think that there have been a number of projects, all of which which have built on each other and built on the findings of each other uh, to be able to, to find out and study, you know, what is actually effective in changing the behavior of patients and clinicians uh, towards the goal of improving healthcare outcomes. That's great, Tree. And just to pick up on that thread of improving healthcare outcomes, let's talk a little bit about retail health. What is retail health and what does it offer health consumers that they aren't just finding in, in the traditional healthcare model today. So I think uh, retail health has the capability to augment the journey and contribute to the journey of a healthcare consumer, and really in, in ways of making healthcare more accessible and convenient and simple for the healthcare consumer by being able to place health services uh, in areas where they live, work, and play. And that also includes, for example, uh, services like virtual primary care that can help consumers get their foot in the door, so to speak, into healthcare and to be able to start uh, advancing their journey along with services like preventative health, which we know are often um, underutilized uh, preventative screening services in healthcare today. So it, it, it really helps to bring healthcare to where the consumer is at and meet consumers where they're at, so to speak. And that sounds like it begins to solve one of those key problems in healthcare, which is the idea of engagement beyond those sort of episodic sick care, you know, there's an interaction between the healthcare system and the patient when they're very sick and then they get better. And then there's sort of a lack of engagement in between. That's right. And we know that, you know, relationships are a foundation of healthcare delivery relationships between patients and their clinicians and the trust within those relationships. And one thing that retail health hopes to build on is building out those relationships and building trust between patients and clinicians in ways that are easy and convenient for patients to be able to advance healthcare outcomes. And not, not only um, convenient for patients, by the way, also we know that there's lots out there about workforce uh, burden on, on healthcare workers. And we know there's an epidemic of clinician burnout. And oftentimes, you know, there, there might be ways through retail help to help those clinicians and providers practice in ways that are also able to reduce the, the burden of burnout for them. Sri, let's talk about a recent article that I read in JAMA Cardiology that had a lead author uh, that was you. Congratulations on that article, by the way. It was, uh, I think, well-received. I certainly liked it. 
In that article, you were studying if it was possible to increase the uptake of cholesterol-lowering medications. So to do that, I think, if I understood your article, there were a couple things that you looked at. One is, well, that, those cholesterol-lowering medications need to be prescribed. That's one issue. And the next issue is that uh, they need to be uh, picked up at the pharmacy, and they also need to be taken by the patient. And so can you talk a little bit about that study and what you learned? Yeah. Yep. Uh, thanks so much, Craig. So that study, which, uh, as you noted, was uh, was published in, in JAMA Cardiology back in November, was conducted with the primary aim of studying effects of nudges embedded within workflow to clinicians, patients, or both to increase guideline-directed statin prescribing. As you noted, statins are cholesterol-lowering medications that there's, you know, at this point, decades of evidence in our field that show both reductions in mortality and morbidity for cardiovascular disease, which also, as we know, is the leading cause of mortality and morbidity generally in the U.S. and globally. So, you know, we think uh, lots of potential for impact here in terms of improving healthcare outcomes by nudging clinicians and patients to prescribe and then take statins. This study is part of a portfolio of work that we've done within the nudge unit on statin prescribing. It's a great sort of example of nudging in action and nudge units in action in the sense that the goal of these nudges were to uh, were to improve outcomes without restricting choices. And what we were trying to study was the way we were presenting choices to clinicians within the electronic health record, as well as to patients, and the way that we sort of frame those choices as well. So, you know, this study really was rooted in portfolio work that we've done starting a couple of years ago, where uh, Dr. Patel had completed a study utilizing a dashboard with a list of patients who are eligible for statin prescribing, where a clinician could indicate that they'd like to prescribe statins. And part of the nudge was helping to facilitate the, the statin prescription. But all of that was done outside of workflow. And you know, subsequently, uh, we did a study inside of workflow directed towards cardiologists, had a couple of key learnings there, and then incorporated those now uh, into this randomized control trial. And so what this study was about was we wanted to expose clinicians within the EHR to an alert that both presented information on eligible patients for statin prescribing, that a patient was eligible, and this is the type of statin they should be on, and this is why. And we wanted to present it at an appropriate time and workflow where a clinician was ready to sign orders. So each of those steps we thought pretty carefully about, about how to architect that nudge to be most convenient and accessible to the clinician and present the correct information. So that was one aspect of it. Along with that, also within the EHR, again, so within workflow, we sent a message to uh, clinicians via an in-basket with peer comparisons on statin prescribing rates. So we're trying to pair multiple concepts from behavioral science together. So that was a, a clinician-focused intervention. Patient-focused intervention was actually a simple text message nudge that was delivered prior to a visit to a patient to be able to ask them to discuss statin prescribing uh, with their clinician, and then also gave them a shared decision aid. And then we had another arm of this randomized study, which actually combined those both, clinician and patient nudges. And ultimately, the, the bottom line is what we found is that the combination of clinician and patient nudges was most effective in raising rates of statin prescribing. So I think it's a good example of workflow, electronic health record-based interventions that can help increase guideline-directed care, but then also grounded in evidence-based principles of behavioral science and how you can combine those interventions together. Moving forward, that you know these were designed and tested in one EHR platform, but it, they could be in the future, you know, scaled even beyond the health system uh, they were designed. I love it, and it's it's everything that you know we talk about all in in one study. 
I think what was great is that you did combine, you know, you kind of uh, stacked learning upon learning and then also combined multiple ways of uh, showing folks the right way, but also giving them, of course, the choice for the patient in front of them to not go with the guidelines if, if appropriate. And really, to me, the key learning from your study was details matter. So it's the wording of the alert. You mentioned the workflow impact that you were considering exactly what was the right time to send this message, this reminder to the, to the clinician. Uh, you gave them the appropriate information that they needed, some of it that they needed. So, hey, this is what the risk score for your patient is. This is the indication. Um, some that they maybe didn't uh, want to see, which is, and by the way, the percentage of your colleagues with similar patients to these, uh, these were, here's where their percentages are in terms of following the guidelines. It all kind of comes together. Uh, and so what was the final outcome? Did you uh, cure um, hypercholesterolemia in the, in the Philadelphia area? Is it all done now? There's, <laughs> are you out of work now, Shri? Is that what's happening? That would be an aspirational goal. Still certainly plenty of work to do. And um, ultimately, uh, our nudge increased statin prescribing by 7.2 percentage points relative to usual care, the combined uh, patient and clinician nudge. And, you know, this was, keep in mind, in a population of patients who weren't already prescribed statins. So perhaps those who might even be harder to reach. But that being said, the group already has uh, additional work underway to think about, okay, how do we continue to build upon these learnings? Because, you know, behavior change is is about motivating individuals. It's about reminding uh, individuals to change behavior. And it's also about making things easy and simple and giving them the ability to do so. It's sort of that the nexus of those and essentially summarized by you know, our chief innovation officer at Penn Medicine, uh, Roy Rosen likes to use the term, uh, you know, make the right thing to do the easy thing to do. And I think that that's really what we continue to strive towards, whether that's purely within the EHR and using health information technology, but then also, you know, how do we go beyond that with workflow, with automation, other ways. We talk a lot about the convenience aspect for consumers and, and the improved engagement and things like that, but there, I, I hear you pulling on that thread of the clinician workforce as well. There's, there's a positive aspect there. It's more care team management of, of healthcare, and that's great. So the engagement piece talks about one of those problems in healthcare that retail health can solve. There are other care gaps in, in healthcare. Is, is, are there ways for retail health to begin to fill some of those as well? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that engagement is is one of those gaps, but also I, I think it really is the foundation. Once you have a, an engaged patient, uh, for example, uh, into healthcare, you can start, uh, you can open the door to bridging a lot of other care gaps, particularly, for example, uh, in the prevention space, you know, can't uh, get at being able to facilitate and coordinate and help a patient navigate through healthcare uh, to be able to get their cancer screening, for example, or in my world, uh, near and dear, their cardiovascular disease risk screening completed, and then to be placed on, on therapies that might be appropriate or lifestyle modifications that might be appropriate for those. But it all starts with building the relationship, building the trust, engaging with a patient or a consumer and, uh, and, and moving on from there. I can see that really clearly. It seems like another way might be in that sort of pharmacy space. You know, there's some stats that that indicate between 20 and 50% of prescriptions don't go filled. And it seems like 
there's an opportunity there as well. Yeah, it could be um, pharmacy. It could be uh, similar statistics exist, for example, for uh, referrals to uh, specialty care from primary care. That's in large part because, uh, you know, tying this back to the nudge aspect, there's the opposite of nudge, which is uh, sludge. Uh, and there's a lot of sludge in our healthcare system. And I think helping consumers navigate that sludge and be able to get that appointment for specialty care that's convenient and near and close to them and, and be able to access care in the timely fashion that they need for their condition. That navigation aspect is another area where retail health could add. I love that point. You know, it's not just the convenience for the consumer. It's also removing some of those frictions that make it hard to move from one part of the care continuum to another. Exactly. Exactly. You mentioned care navigation and, and healthcare can be really complex, particularly from the patient perspective where they may be going through a, a clinical process that is new to them. So tell me a little bit about care navigation and, and does that link back to specific learnings from the nudge unit? At each point in the healthcare journey, there's an opportunity to help a patient navigate. And there are multiple ways to do it, uh, whether it's from you know, uh, a human-to-human -human connection, and oftentimes that may be the most beneficial. Uh, there could be other ways, you know, using technology to augment that human, for example, a chatbot which you know, I think were deployed in many healthcare systems, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's really everything from how do you help a patient access care and get their foot in the door and then uh, to care to a visit, uh, seeing a patient uh, during the visit. Uh, and then, you know, particularly post-visit, I think lots of opportunities there to help. There's oftentimes, you know, lots of to-dos, uh, tasks spun off from each visit, whether it's to get labs done, get some imaging done, get seen at a referral uh, at a specialist office and being able to help a patient, you know, figure out you know, what is the closest, easiest spot to get their labs done or specialist, I think is all, is all part of that navigation um, activity. Uh, I think another piece of that is, especially as our health systems have focused on social determinants of health is First, how do we identify, you know, oftentimes the navigation piece relates to social determinants of health, transportation, housing, uh, many others. And so how do we identify what those barriers might be and then help a patient connect to resources uh, for those aspects, again, to, all in service of helping to improve healthcare outcomes. And so, you know, how this relates back to uh, some of the learnings from the nudge unit, uh, I think in my mind could be that, you know, the team's done a lot of work in, in the area of, if, if you take the statin prescribing example of reminding and motivating a clinician at hopefully appropriate times in workflow and making it easy to help to prescribe that, that medication for patients. But then, you know, I think there's a navigation aspect in terms of helping a patient to really understand uh, uh, post-visit, let's say, um, how is the statin helping them? How are they doing with the statin? What are the side effects uh, are they're experiencing if they're experiencing anyway? How can we help navigate through those side effects? You know, what's the easiest way to get to a medication? Or if the medication is not as effective, for example, uh, in terms of lowering cholesterol, what are next options? Each of those steps require some element of navigation that I think being able to streamline and make those even easier uh, might be sort of additional steps we could take to help not only get patients on statins, but stay on those medications or others that might improve their lifespan and also reduce morbidity. So I'm hearing um, there are a number of ways that that combination of people and technology can help improve outcomes, whether that's through engagement or education or helping clinicians on the workflow side, just make sure that everything is seamless and, and the information is going exactly where we want. And we 
kind of understand the principles by which people interact with one another and interact with technology. So we understand from a stakeholder standpoint, how to best engage them with that combination of tools. Right. And, and I think there's a, there's a lot more work uh, to be done. It goes back to Craig's uh, comment about uh, details matter. And there, there's so many details. There's so much context to be understood. There's so many details also to, you know, I, ideally study and be able to see, you know, okay, is this the right framing? Is this the right time and workflow? Is this the right way even of translating the guidelines? Uh, that, that was another aspect, by the way, that we thought a lot about is how do we translate the science and the evidence into a form that could be computable? They could be presented within an EHR to, to a patient. So all of these aspects are opportunities, I think, you know, going forward, and not only to statin prescribing, but many other areas of guideline-directed care. I think that's uh, an excellent point, actually, that we've not talked about enough, that uh, often the guidelines, you know, what physicians are supposed to be doing are written in English, and uh, most humans can look at those and, and decide uh, what they're supposed to do and, and try and do the right thing. However, we get into arguments on the IT side because it's hard to make these into computer-readable terms. You had mentioned the guidelines around statin prescribing. As a pediatrician, the one I'm thinking about mostly is immunizations. And um, the CDC and FDA have long had these uh, very detailed uh, recommendations, but sometimes they said things like, has to be at least a year um, or sometimes two months. And, you know, hey, how do I tell a computer what two months is? Because that's going to be a different number of days, of course, based on where we started and where we're ending. And, and so being able to take some of the recommendations and the learning and translate them into technology so that they can be acted upon, which is a on and off, one and zero, there's no ambiguity there, it is very complicated. And, and you ran into it here. And it's something that we really do need our policymakers to take into consideration Certainly some organizations, I know the American Academy of Pediatrics has a group that looks at their recommendations and their guidelines before they get published to ensure that they can be as easily as possible translated into you know, machine-readable, machine-interpretable guidelines. Are the cardiologists uh, on board with this, or are you all ahead of us or behind us pediatricians? <laughs> I think the cardiologists are very much on board uh, with this. Uh, you know, in cardiology, there's uh, lots of randomized clinical trials out there, tens of thousands of patients that sort of uh, comprise the evidence base behind the practices. And that's been sort of a culture, a tradition, uh, lots of work of many people in the field. I think our professional societies have been thinking very deeply about how to then take, you know, all of that evidence that then makes its way into guidelines and then think about how do you actually implement those guidelines and particularly because EHRs and health information technology are right at the forefront. That is at the interface of where clinicians and patients are at. You know, how do you bring those guidelines to life in, in that venue particularly? And I couldn't agree with you, Craig, more in terms of the translation aspect. Many things can be written within, let's say, a, a guideline, but really thinking about how to translate those. Even in our example, how do you define in a computable fashion clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease? And, and that might be maybe one of the more easier challenges in translation, but still one that we found in a way that the EHR could consume it was a challenge. And that's really a role, I think, for a clinical informaticist uh, who could sort of bridge both worlds, you know, know the clinical aspect, and then also think about, you know, okay, what are, what are the groupers that need to be created to help to really implement this, this guideline as an example? Yeah, groupers are the sexy part of IT. Yeah. <laughs> Having created uh, more SNOMED groupers than I, I care to admit to. 
let me ask you a very serious question about naming of these studies, because clearly cardiologists know how to name studies and they come up with titles that are just amazing. So is that a year? Is that part of your fellowship or, you know, where do you learn how to name some of these studies? Because I think all of us non-cardiologists were jealous. We want to know. It should be a part of fellowship training. Uh, unfortunately, this latest study, did, uh, we did not name it, which we should have, but there is a long tradition in, in cardiology with fantastic names for studies. And I, th- I think really helpful. It helps us keep these studies top of mind and oftentimes do describe what the study is about. See, there you go. I'm, I'm trying to make fun and poke fun at the cardiologists and you won't have any of it. Uh, you're right. Those namings do make sense. Sure, you mentioned that intentionality of design is something we understand how to do in in sort of small pockets, but how do we begin to apply the lessons learned there to the broader health ecosystem? That's a great question, Jerome. But I I think uh, first, as we build upon the pockets of work that have been done to really make sure our stakeholders are at the table from the beginning. And that means clinicians, and again, not only physicians, but the entire care team to go back to another theme we had talked about that medicine is a team sport. So at the beginning, users, clinicians are at the table as we're designing interventions, whether that's a, an alert within the EHR or otherwise, and patients, of course, themselves as well. So um, the more we can do that, I think the better. And that's, I think, one of the lessons uh, also from the nudge unit is, is really trying to, to stay in lockstep. And certainly with every project, we could do it better, but really trying to stay in lockstep with our with stakeholder groups, with patients, with clinicians who will be seeing these and using these tools. So that's that's one. But then we should really try to share uh, what we're learning. And that's another thing that the, uh, that the Nudge Unit, uh, I think, is really uh, strive to do, which is share the learnings uh, and, and create them in scientific fashion using rigorous study designs, but then also share, uh, share what works. Uh, the statin study was an example, uh, potentially, of, of approaches that could be used and built upon that worked in terms of increasing statin prescribing. But there were other studies. I'd mentioned one we had done in the cardiology world that didn't lead to statistically or clinically significant increases in statin prescribing. But yet there's still learnings to be had from that from that work. And we published that. Uh, it was also published in JAMA Cardiology, even though it was a quote unquote negative study. But those learnings directly informed what we put into this study. And our hope would be that uh, the learnings from this study that then others could take and build upon them. I also think that as um, EHR platforms become more wide, you know, EHR platforms in general are already widespread, but potentially as Certain platforms do uh, uh, more users, uh, more systems are, are on them that perhaps on those that have higher uh, utilization or adoption, there might be opportunities for partnership and being able to uh, embed uh, in, in foundational ways these types of tools uh, such that every system doesn't have to recreate them on their own and that we could use evidence-based, uh, let's say, EHR alerts you know, across platforms. Yeah, you know, what you're saying really resonates with me and it reminds me of the title of chief innovation officer. And I'm not sure who originated this, but it's pretty popular now. The idea that really you shouldn't be a chief innovation officer, you should be a chief imitation officer. And uh, so often it's really not innovation that you're not doing something de novo that no one has ever done before. You're, you're facing the same problems that others have faced. And um, a good thing to do would be to learn from from others and stand on the shoulders of others and uh, that's what you're talking about. And so I, I do think it's it's important. Uh, the nudge unit, of course, is generating knowledge, which is terrific, but also getting that knowledge out there to the masses is a key part of your role and the, and the role of the nudge unit and, and your current role too. 
So I, yeah, I can't uh, emphasize that enough. It's not that helpful if you just uh, figure something out and then don't tell anyone. So thank you for putting all that information out there and, and then encouraging us to, uh, to copy it. And, and I think it goes both ways, Craig, too, whether we figure something out and, and, and it leads to an improvement or whether we don't, you know, what doesn't work, uh, I think is just as important um, so that others can move in, in different directions or take the learnings from there and build upon, you know, with, with their own work. Sri, can you tell us about three things that are so well designed outside of healthcare is fine, uh, that interacting with them really brings you joy? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great question. And although these are outside of healthcare examples, it's sort of the same principles that apply. How do you make something simple, uh, easy, uh, convenient, the right thing to do, the easy thing to do that I think we would be, you know, to adopt those within healthcare all the better. But a couple of those include, uh, you know, here on my desk, uh, I have, uh, you know, the, the company, I think Dyson is known for their vacuums but they actually make a variety of other things, including a desk lamp. And it is really fantastic. Uh, It knows uh, the the time of day. Uh, It knows where in the world I'm located and it creates the exact shade of light for what should be appropriate to reduce uh, fatigue. Uh, And, you know, even the way that it's sort of uh, built uh, to be on the desk is is able to be used with a a variety of devices, et cetera. So, you know, that that does uh, bring me joy in using. So that's that's one example. Um, I think the other two uh, relate to music, actually, uh, another um, joy in general. But uh, one is uh, is Sonos. It, it goes back to simplicity and, and ease of use. That uh, it just is there and available when we need it, when we want it. Again, something ideally that that we could apply to healthcare as well. And then the third example is uh, the music service, uh, which is certainly uh, not endorsing any of these, but simply just uh, observing, uh, which is Spotify. Um, the, the reason why uh, that example is it, it knows you know uh, what what music I'm listening to. It knows uh, it's able to predict uh, uh, what I might be interested in correctly. Uh, and there's an opportunity to interact with and reinforce that learning as well. Uh, all, all sort of concepts that I think could be applied in healthcare as well. Excellent. Shri, thanks so much for joining us. This was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you both, uh, Craig and Jerome, so much for the invitation uh, to, to join. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well.